worship team, band. Well, good morning to you. If you would turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be looking at the first three and a half verses this morning. Just a couple of announcements. We have our deacon ordination service tonight. It would be deeply encouraging to them if you were to be able to make tonight's service. It's a special time for our new deacons especially. Also just continue to remind you of our Lottie Moon Christmas offering this year. The goal is $66,000. 100% of that money goes to the International Mission, uh, Mission Board and 100% of that money goes to the ground. No administrative cost. It's, it's 100% bang for your buck. It's a, a way to impact Places that you will never go, you will never see. For the gospel's sake, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake. Well, if you would look with me in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul, after praying this remarkable prayer that ends up with a focus on Christ's exaltation over and for the church. He writes, and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Begins in the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. But God. But God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he has loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace, you have been saved. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning as trophies of grace. Not trophies of our own merit, trophies of grace. But to celebrate that, we have to muse upon what we once were. Give us grace to do that excellently and faithfully this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Someone recently introduced me to a ra the, the app that plays the old Casey Kasem Top 40 Countdown. Now, every weekend in the late 70s, early to mid 80s, I, along with much of America, were tuned in to Casey Kasem to hear what those top 40 songs would be that week. And then at the end of the year, we were tuned in to Casey Kasem to hear what the top 100 songs of the year would be. And then there were those sappy, cheesy, long-distance dedications as well. And when I listen to that old countdown now, I can't help, and my wife will tell you this, but get nostalgic, which is what most of us want to do. 
what most of us want to remember about our earlier years. Nostalgia. But in our text today, Paul takes us back to the past as well. But his view is not nostalgic. It's anything but nostalgic. There's nothing sentimental here. On the contrary, it's filled with spirit-inspired realism as he plumbs the depths of pessimism about our sin condition prior to our conversion to Jesus Christ. Now, why would he do such a thing? There, there are many pulpits today that say, we don't need to talk about sin. People already know they make mistakes. That's what you'll often hear. Well, in one sense, we, we ever need to be reminded from whence we came. We need to be reminded of these things so that we can also be ever kindled in our love for what God has done for us by his grace in Jesus Christ. But contextually... Paul is doing something different here. Paul wants to drive home a point about God's power that was displayed in the resurrection of Jesus and in his ascension to the right hand of God. Remember his prayer. And there was no chapter division when Paul wrote this. The chapter divisions were added later. And so he goes right into this discussion in chapter 2 off the heels of this prayer where he prays that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened in order to know the hope to which God has called us, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And he says, and his incomparably great power for those who believe, to those who believe. And then he says that power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him above all rule, authority, and power and dominion. And he appointed him in this power to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And now Paul, after praying that, is going to give us a case in point. You want to know about this power? I'm going to remind you of where you once were, who you once were. And that brings us to the very beginning of this passage. He's going to remind us of who we were so that we, we can be reminded of the power that was displayed in changing who we were. Well, starting in verse 1, we see humanity by nature. Humanity by nature. And the first thing we see about humanity by nature is that we were spiritually dead. We were spiritually dead. Notice in verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So he's writing to believers and he describes this life as a walk, moment by moment, decision by decision. It's a walk following the course of this world. So what's interesting here about this word dead, what does it mean? Well, this same word is used to refer to physical death in Romans 14, verse 9. In Colossians 2, he uses this same word where he says 
that we are united as believers in the death of Jesus Christ. And so death means death. Now, in this particular case, he's not referring to physical death, clearly, because he's writing to people who are alive. But death, nonetheless, there's some type of death that he is describing here. And he says this death is traced to trespasses and sins. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, what is a trespass? It's a false step. It, it, it involves crossing some kind of boundary. Of course, we know that we are a boundary people. The boundary is God's law. And so a trespass is to cross a boundary. You are crossing over, breaking God's law. He says, that's who we were. And then he uses the language of sin, trespasses and sin. Now, the word sin means literally to miss a mark, falling short of a standard. Now, when we think about sin, we tend to think about the deeds done in the body. That certainly is sins, plural. So we commit sins in our body, sins of commission, things that we shouldn't do, and sins of omission, things that we should do but we don't. Those are sins, plural. Paul would say, though, our biggest problem is not the sins we commit. Those are the fruit of our biggest problem. The biggest problem we have is being under sin. Romans 3, verse 9. That is, that is our nature. That is our disposition. We are under sin. So what does this mean to be under sin? Well, Jonathan Edwards is helpful here. He speaks about the fact that Sin is when the glory of God is not honored. When, when the greatness of God is not admired. When, when the beauty of God is not treasured. When the person of God is not loved. When the presence of God is not prized. When the wisdom of God is not esteemed. When the justice of God is not respected, when the wrath of God is not feared, when the grace of God is not cherished, the goodness of God not savored, the commandments of God not obeyed, the faithfulness of God not trusted, that is what it means to be under sin. And from that nature comes all of our sins, plural, that we commit in the body. And that's why Paul would say the result of this is to be alienated from the life of God, Ephesians 4, 18. That's what it means to be dead. Well, Paul describes it this way. Now, having said this, this statement about the deadness of our prior state of the unbeliever's state, let's be honest, it doesn't seem to bear up to our senses, to what we see, what we perceive, our experiences. Uh, there are many, and we know them. You have them perhaps in your family. You have them in your neighborhood. You have them in the workplace. Many people who make no profession of faith at all in Jesus 
but who appeared to be very much alive. Indeed, in, it would be wrong-headed in one sense to, to deny that unbelievers can perform good deeds. Even Jesus said that. In, Jesus, in Luke 6, verse 33, Jesus said these words, And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that for even sinners do the same? So in one sense, unbelievers that Paul is describing as dead can do good things. In Acts 28 too, when Paul and his crew had that shipwreck on the island of Malta, the barbarians on the island there of Malta, it says in Acts 22, showed unusual kindness to, to Luke and to Paul and everyone on the ship. Unusual kindness. These were barbarians. They were far from the kingdom of God. So what gives here when he describes the unbeliever as dead? Well, Augustine contemplated this a great deal, and he used the term splendid vices. He says, because we're the image of God, and we have not completely lost the image due to our sin, and because the law of God is written on our hearts, Every human being has some capacity to do splendid things that benefit the city of man, that benefit the world. But they're vices nonetheless because they're not motivated by the highest motivations. The glory of God, the love of God, the law, the law of God. Herman Bavink says it this way, the natural love still inherent in every person. So he says there is natural love inherent in every person. Even Adolf Hitler, as wicked and I believe as possessed as he was, he was renowned for being a great pet owner. Some capacities there. The natural love still inherent in every person, the moral character fostered by upbringing and struggle. Favorable circumstances of constitution. You just may have a personality that lends itself to kindness, he says. Environment, job, and so on. All these frequently lead people to practice beautiful and praiseworthy virtues. Note, however, that while these factors may subdue the sinful disposition of the heart, they do not eradicate it. Indeed, that which is good, that which is true good in the eyes of an infinitely good, infinitely holy God is only what is done out of faith according to God's law and to God's glory. And with that being the standard, okay, with that being the standard, Paul says... We are by nature dead in our trespasses and sins. It's an uncontestable fact that even people with sterling reputations for virtue, and we know them, have been known to respond to every gospel appeal with utter contempt. In other words, in the sphere which ultimately matters... 
they have no life. They have no life. And you can tell it. They have no love for God, no intimate awareness of his presence, no inner cry from their spirit towards him, Abba, Father, no longing of fellowship with him. They are blind to the glory of Jesus Christ and deaf to the voice of the spirit. And if they have a Bible in their home, it is a closed Bible. They are unresponsive to ultimate things like a corpse. And that's why Paul would describe them as dead. One of my best friends growing up, his name was Rob Hickman. Rob was also one of the wittiest people, but on this particular day, he experienced something that was not funny. He saw his next-door neighbor lying in his backyard. So he ran to his next-door neighbor and and attempted mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, but to no avail. When they did the autopsy on his neighbor, it was revealed that his neighbor had been dead for two days. Rob had been doing mouth-to-mouth on a dead man. A dead man will not respond to stimuli. While Paul is describing our prior state this way. The things of the Spirit are foolishness to the dead one, to the dead person. And here's what Paul says. He's writing to Christians. This isn't an evangelistic text. It can be used that way for sure. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to Fisherville Baptist, to every believer here. And he is saying, that was you. That was us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. The second aspect of this passage, not only were we were dead, we were enslaved. Notice he says in the second part of verse 2, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is an outwork in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were enslaved. And here he refers to a triple tyranny. It's bad enough to be enslaved to one tyrannical power. He says this was a triple tyranny. The first thing he describes is that we followed the course of this world. Following the course of this world. What is the world? It's the world system. It's a society that is organized without reference to God. What we would say today as secularism. Martin Lloyd-Jones is in the early 1960s, said it this way. They think as the world thinks. They don't know that because a fish doesn't know it's wet, right? They think as the world thinks. They take their opinions ready-made from their 
favorite newspaper, or we might say today news station, or social media. It's being conformed to the pattern of this world. Romans 12, verse 1. Paul says, in fact, that there's only two choices. You'll either be conformed to the pattern of this world, the world system, the culture in which you live, or you'll be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's only two choices. There's only two types of people in the world, those who are conformed to this world and who, those who were transformed by the renewing of their mind. So to be conformed to this world means that our habits, our preferences, our attitudes are all informed by the world more so than the word. I mean, just think of this one instance, we, and we could apply this in so many ways. Just think about abortion. M- many people today are lulled to sleep by that conversation because it's all we know. It's been legal since 1973, so most of us don't even remember when it wasn't legal. But if I were to come to you and you'd never heard of the concept of abortion, it, it's completely new to you. you, you, you you've, maybe you've, been, you've lived on some uh, island and you've just never heard anything about the notion of abortion. And I were to describe to you abortion. Not a single person would respond, we have a choice. Not a single person. The reason we would say you have a choice is because we have allowed the world to inform our thinking. It would astound us all to hear that abortion was a viable option. That's just one of many examples of allowing the world to inform the way we think. It's cultural bondage. And what makes it even scarier is we're oblivious about it. Paul says, that's who we were. That's who we were. The world's system dictated. Now, granted, there are common graces. So a kid who's not converted to Christ yet, they still are under the impulses of their parents and the influence of their parents. And so they may borrow, praise God for this, borrow capital from a Christian worldview. But our natural state is to allow the world to determine our thinking. And that was us. So we're enslaved to the world system. But second, second, Paul says there's another tyrannical power. Our second captivity was to the devil. Notice in the second part of verse 2. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the son's of disobedience. Notice how he describes those who are not yet saved, sons of disobedience. In a recent Barna study, get this, one half, 50% of professing Christians said that Satan is a symbol, not a living being. And yet his existence is attested, get this, in nine Old Testament books and by every New Testament writer. Not every New Testament book, but every New Testament writer attests to the existence 
of a personal being. In the Old Testament, he is described as the Satan, which means the accuser. In the New Testament, he's, just, he's called Satan 34 times, but the most common name for him in the New Testament is the devil, which means slanderer. It's used 60 times in the New Testament. Let me give you some other New Testament names for this personal being. The accuser, Revelation 12, verse 10. The adversary, 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Apollyon, Romans, Revelation 9, verse 11. Beelzebub, Matthew 12, 24. Belial, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 15. The dragon, Revelation 12, verse 7. The god of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. The prince of this world, John 12, verse 31. The serpent. Revelation 20, verse 2, and the tempter, Matthew 4, verse 3. The New Testament writers certainly believed there was a personal being that we know as the devil. Paul describes him here as the prince, the power of the air. Why would he describe him that way? Because this present age is ruled by this evil one. And so when he says the, this prince is at work, notice again in the last part of verse 2, the spirit who is at work, that word work, at work, that verb is the same word that's used of God's power that raised Jesus from the dead in Ephesians 1. That's not to say he has the same power as God. In, in no sense. He's not omnipotent. God is omnipotent. But he is at work even as the Lord is at work. Now, it's not a cosmic dualism. God is infinite in his power. The devil is not. But he is at work trying to undo the work of God in Jesus Christ. And, and the principal way he works, let me offer you this, is seen in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. In that passage, Paul writes, If our gospel is veiled... What does it mean to have the gospel veiled? It means that you don't see its beauty. You don't see its necessity. It's veiled to you. He says, and if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case? The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see they cannot see the light of the gospel and the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's how he principally works. He works by deception. And why do I tell you this? Because the only way to overcome his deception, he's been deceiving people since the fall. And he's good at what he does. He's been doing it for thousands of years. While Paul will say later in Ephesians 6 that the primary armor piece for the Christian is the belt of truth. The belt of truth. Without the belt of truth, you will be deceived. Paul says that was our former state. This was us. And so we see the tyranny of the world system. We've seen the tyranny of the devil himself. And the third tyrannical power we see... The beginning of verse 3, 
He says, among whom we also once lived. That is, with the sons of disobedience. That's who we were. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. The desires of the body begin in the mind. Flesh, what does he mean here, flesh? He's not talking about our physical flesh, our skeletons. He's referring here to our self-centered, self-loving, narcissistic human nature. This sin nature is the I in me that tries to satisfy me with anything and everything that is not God himself. That's the flesh that Paul is referring to. Now, in Galatians 5, he gets more descriptive. And I think it worth some time to look at this. In Galatians 5, 19 to 21, he describes the works of the flesh. That is, this very flesh that we were enslaved to prior to our conversion to Jesus Christ. Here's what he says in Galatians 5. The works of the flesh, sexual immorality. That word is the word porneia, where we get the word pornography. What is that? All sexual expression outside the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman is sexual immorality. All sexual expression. Impurity. That's defilement. Stemming from sexual immorality. In other words, you commit sexual immorality, you don't just commit one sin. Third, sensuality. That's devotion to the gratification of the bodily appetite. You're under the dominion. It's the works of the flesh. Idolatry. That is to find your identity, find your worth, find your significance, find your pleasure in anything and everything but the one who created you. You might say that's the most fundamental of sins. It's the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. We're naturally idolaters. Sorcery. That's rather than trusting God, we manipulate our circumstances for our desired end. Enmity. This is hatred that lies at the root of discord. Enmity. If there's enmity in a church, if there's enmity in a marriage, enmity in a family or in a workplace, it's the works of the flesh. Strife. Contention that divides people from one another. Strife is the works of the flesh. Strife is never the fruit of the Spirit. Ever, ever, ever. Remember that. Remember that on social media. Jealousy. A person who wants what others have. Because God is not enough. He's a holdout. You believe he's a holdout. He's held out on you. And so you're discontented. And, and the fruit of that discontentment is jealousy. Someone else has something that you believe that you need in order to have significance and worth and happiness. Fits of anger. anger. 
uncontrolled temper that leaves awake. These are the works of the flesh that Paul says that we were enslaved to. Rivalries, selfish ambition that brings discord. Rivalries, dissensions, disagreement in opinion, which you can have even in a godly relationship, but dissension produces enmity. Division, works of the flesh. Again, we get so used to this stuff. We, we, we hear it on the news. We see it on social media that we get so used to it that we are conformed to it. This should shock us. It should shock us. Divisions. Paul used the same word for factions in a church. In 1 Corinthians 11 verse 19. Divisions. Paul says it's the works of the flesh. Envy. Again, related to coveting, jealousy, the desire to possess what others have. Drunkenness. Drunkenness is essentially being under dominion, under the dominion of the vine, when God has created us as his image bearers to take dominion. Someone who believes they need substance to make it is saying, God is not sufficient for me. He needs to be supplemented. And from that orgies, it's remarkable, but that is the fruit of being under dominion. And this what's most scary to me. Paul's not given us an exhaustive list. He says, and things like these. Things like these. And he says, if this is what describes you as a pattern, as a rule, no repentance, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says that in Galatians 5. Horrifying language. Paul says, that's who you were. That's who we were. Indeed, a person whose life is characterized by the flesh may not even be living a, a life of scandal. They may be upstanding citizens in the community. They may even be upstanding citizens in a church community. They may be hardworking. They may be responsible citizens. But if their minds are occupied with the physical world of the flesh, Paul says they're enslaved. Paul has not merely given us a portrait of them. Here's what he says in Ephesians 2. This is remarkable. Among whom we all once lived. It's easy to critique them, right? Paul said, that's what you. That was your pastor. Horrifying language. So then, before our conversion, let's, let's review this. Before our conversion, before Jesus set us free, we were enslaved. Outside was the world. Inside was our flesh that controlled us. 
And actively working through both was the prince of the power of the air. A threefold tyranny. Now, in any given moment, one of the three may be leading the charge. Remember, Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it. Well, Flip got one of them right. But in any particular case, you can't just blame what's outside of you. You can't just blame the devil. It's also your flesh that's controlling you. Paul says, that was us. That was us. So we've seen we were dead. We were enslaved. And then finally, notice, we were condemned. Notice in the second part of verse 3. He says, and were by nature children of wrath. That's not saying you were by nature children who really got mad a lot. You were by nature children under wrath. That's what he's saying there. Like the rest of mankind. No partic- he's not referring to a particular ethnicity. He's not referring to a particular gender, demographic group. Like the rest of mankind. Horrifying language. And so the fall into sin, Genesis 3, wasn't just a moral lapse. It wasn't just a mistake. It was a deliberate turning away from God. Sin's entrance into the world brought about a sinful nature in all humanity. Here's what Paul said in Romans 5.12. Through one man, Adam, sin entered the world... And death through sin, for all have sinned in Adam. So Adam was our representative, our federal head, and we sinned in Adam. We're sinners by birth, we're sinners by choice. In other words, our present, that is our present life, is the effective history of an original transgression that defines our ethical character, conditions, and actions. And as a result, we're all, by nature, deserving of wrath. Paul says, that was you. This was us. Now, wrath isn't something that many churches talk about today. They'll tell you if, you, if you, if you want to grow a church, you better not talk a whole lot about wrath. They love to speak about mercy and grace and love. And the term today, social justice. But wrath? <laughs> but in the Old Testament, get this, there are more than 20 words that are used to express God's wrath. More than 600 passages in the Old Testament speak about God's wrath. You say, well, I'm a New Testament Christian. Do you think the New Testament tones God's wrath down any? Look at the cross. Keep in mind, in AD 51, so this is about a decade before Ephesians was written. 
in AD 51, less than two decades after the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, Paul wrote his first preserved letter. You might say his first canonical letter. And his urgency about the wrath of God was already clear in that first letter. 1 Thessalonians. And here's what he says in 1 Thessalonians 1. He called the Thessalonians to wait for his son. That is God's son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers from the wrath to come. So how does Jesus deliver from the wrath to come? He took it. He took God's wrath. It's what we call propitiation. He satisfied God's wrath on sin because God is good. And good judges penalize evil. He took it though in our place. And then Paul closes that letter with these words, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the reason we have a problem with God's wrath on sin is twofold. First of all, the reason we have a problem with God's wrath on sin is because sin doesn't provoke our wrath. But the second reason we have a problem with God's wrath on sin is because we impute our understanding of our personal wrath onto Him. And our wrath is, is flawed, sinful, and, and provoked by our selfishness and self-love. But God's wrath is not like man's. It's not a bad temper. So that He may fly off the handle at any given moment. It's never arbitrary. God's wrath is never arbitrary and capricious like ours is since it's the divine reaction to only one situation, evil. That's God's wrath. It is God's righteous and personal and constant hostility to evil. And it's his settled refusal to compromise with evil. It means that God's holiness never allows any sin to thrive. That's what wrath is. God's holiness never allows sin to thrive. That's a good thing, right? So we think about a God like that. That's a good God. He never allows sin to thrive. And Paul says, that was once us. We were dead we were enslaved and we were condemned these are the descriptions that paul uses for our lost human condition and the picture of our sin condition here let's be honest it's tough to preach i'm sure it's hard to hear it's hard to swallow but let me close with this very helpful illustration that I gleaned from Richard Koken, who is a European writer. He says, imagine three patients. They, they all have heart conditions. They've gone to their cardiologist. He has seen the scans. He's seen the x-rays. 
he sits the three in his office and he says to these three heart patients, I have some really good news for you. Really good news, but you won't realize it's good news unless I first tell you the bad news. All of you have a serious heart disease because you've not been taking care of yourself. You haven't eaten right. You haven't exercised. You've chain smoked for 30 years. And unless you have major surgery, you're going to die within a year. The first patient stands up in a huff. And he says, who are you to criticize me like this? I came in here for some reassurance. I came in here for some encouragement. And you have made me feel terrible. And he stomps out of the office. The second patient likewise stands up. Enraged. How dare you? Who do you think you are telling me my heart needs surgery? I'll find some other doctors who tell me that I'm fine. I'm a lot healthier than most of the guys that I know who chain smoke and who don't eat right. I feel fine. You're the most arrogant doctor that I have ever seen. And he stomps out. But the third patient is sitting there, quiet and sobered. And he says, Doctor, this is a terrible shock to hear that I need surgery. But thank you for telling me the truth. I'm so relieved that there's good news of an operation to save me. Please tell me about it. That's what we have here. Except, remember, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to people who've already responded like the third patient. But sometimes we need to be reminded. Sometimes we need to be reminded from whence we came. So that the grace that we are so prone to forget... And grow dull to can be recelebrated. When you see a, a Christian who's acting fleshly, that is a billboard saying that person's gotten over grace. That person has gotten over grace. And that brings us, and we're going to come back to this next week. So we sing humanity by nature, one to three. We're going to see this next week humanity by grace. Let's just close with these words from verses 4 to 5, and we'll come back to them next week. You were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You were dead, you were enslaved, and you were condemned. Verse 4, but God. But God. But God. But God, being rich in mercy, 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We'll come back to this next week, but why is verses 1 to 3 so important for the Christian? Because by downplaying the seriousness of sin, by downplaying the seriousness of our sin condition, it trivializes the grace of God. It trivializes the debt that was paid for us and our salvation. Indeed, minimizing the bad news can only produce a big yawn when you hear the good news. You have to mourn before you can dance. But when we remember the severity of our prior condition, when we remember, and we need to remember, these two words, but God changes everything. It changes everything. The gospel in two words. But God. What this should do is provoke hallelujah for every Christian. And hope for every unbeliever. Hallelujah for every Christian. That's who you were. It's no longer who you are. But hope for every unbeliever. Paul has described the most heinous condition imaginable. And if you're not a Christian today, that's who you are. But Paul says there's hope. The hope is found in those two words. But God, who is rich in mercy, will make you alive even when you're dead. It is by grace you are saved. If you will come to the place where you recognize I'm a sinner. This is who I am. And, and there's varying degrees, right? Of decay in a corpse. But that's who I am. I'm dead. I'm enslaved. And I'm under condemnation. You recognize that Jesus Christ took the condemnation for those who would trust him. He paid our sin debt in full. Bible says your sins will be forgiven. That's the hope of these two words. But God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that we gather here today because all of us as believers can say, but God, but God, who is rich in mercy, thank you for making us alive even when we were dead. Thank you for your grace poured out on us at the expense of your son, Jesus Christ, who took the cross so that we don't have to. We pray that this text would rekindle our love our affection, our awe for our saving triune God. And Lord, if there's any here today that have never trusted in Jesus, oh God, that they would flee to the cross, that they would flee to Jesus and be saved. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.